Section thirty one, part four, chapter five, part one of Atlantis, the Antediluvian World by Ignatius Loyola Donnelly. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Atlantis, the Antediluvian World by Ignatius Loyola Donnelly. Chapter five, the pyramid the cross, and the Garden of Eden. No fact is better established than the reverence shown to the sign of the cross in all the ages prior to Christianity. We cannot do better than quote from an able article in the Edinburgh Review of July 1870 upon this question. From the dawn of organized paganism in the Eastern world, to the final establishment of Christianity in the Western, the cross was undoubtedly one of the commonest and most sacred of symbolical monuments. And, to a remarkable extent, it is so still in almost every land where that of Calvary is unrecognized or unknown. Apart from any distinctions of social or intellectual superiority, of caste, color, nationality, or location in either hemisphere, it appears to have been the aboriginal possession of every people in antiquity, the elastic girdle, so to say, which embraced the most widely separated heathen communities, the most significant token of a universal brotherhood, to which all the families of mankind were severally and irresistibly drawn and by which their common descent was emphatically expressed, or by means of which each and all preserved, amid every vicissitude of fortune, a knowledge of the primeval happiness and dignity of their species. Where authentic history is silent on the subject, the material relics of past and long since forgotten races are not wanting to confirm and strengthen this supposition. Diversified forms of the symbol are delineated more or less artistically, according to the progress achieved in civilization at the period, on the ruined walls of temples and palaces, on natural rocks and sepulchral galleries, on the hoariest monoliths and the rudest statuary, on coins, medals, and vases of every description, and, in not a few instances, are preserved in the architectural proportions of subterranean as well as superterranean structures, of tumuli as well as fanes. The extraordinary sanctity attaching to the symbol, in every age and under every variety of circumstance, justified any expenditure incurred in its fabrication or embellishment. Hence, the most persistent labor the most consummate ingenuity, were lavished upon it. Populations of essentially different culture, tastes, and pursuits, the highly civilized and the demi-civilized, the settled and nomadic, vied with each other in their efforts to extend the knowledge of its exceptional import and virtue among their latest posterities. The marvelous rock-hewn caves of Elephanta and Elora, and the stately temples of Mathura and Terputi in the east may be cited as characteristic examples 
of one laborious method of exhibiting it and the megalithic structures of Callernish and Newgrange in the west of another, while a third may be instanced in the great temple at Mitzla, the city of the moon, in Ojaca, Central America, also excavated in the living rock, and manifesting the same stupendous labor and ingenuity as are observable in the cognate caverns of Salcette, of endeavors, we repeat, made by peoples as intellectually as geographically distinct, and followers withal of independent and unassociated deities to magnify and perpetuate some grand primeval symbol. Of the several varieties of the cross still in vogue as national or ecclesiastical emblems in this and other European states, and distinguished by the familiar appellations of St. George, St. Andrew, the Maltese, the Greek, the Latin, etc., etc., there is not one among them, the existence of which may not be traced to the remotest antiquity. They were the common property of the Eastern nations. No revolution or other casualty has wrought any perceptible difference in their several forms or delineations. They have passed from one hemisphere to the other intact, have survived dynasties, empires, and races, have been born on the crest of each successive wave of Aryan population in its course toward the west, and, having been reconsecrated in later times by their lineal descendants, are still recognized as military and national badges of distinction. Among the earliest known types is the crux ansata, vulgarly called the key of the Nile, because of its being found sculptured or otherwise represented so frequently upon Egyptian and Coptic monuments. It has, however, a very much older and more sacred signification than this. It was the symbol of symbols, the mystical Tao, the bidden wisdom, not only of the ancient Egyptians, but also of the Chaldeans, Phoenicians, Mexicans, Peruvians, and of every other ancient people commemorated in history in either hemisphere, and is formed very similarly to our letter T, with a roundlet or oval placed immediately above it. Thus it was figured on the gigantic emerald or glass statue of Serapis, which was transported, 293 B.C., by order of Ptolemy Sauter from Sinope, on the southern shores of the Black Sea, re-erected within that famous labyrinth which encompassed the banks of Lake Marius, and destroyed by the victorious army of Theodosius, A.D. 389, despite the earnest entreaties of the Egyptian priesthood to spare it, because it was the emblem of their god, and of the life to come. Sometimes, as may be seen on the breast of an Egyptian mummy in the museum of the London University, the simple tea only is planted on the frustum of a cone, and sometimes it is represented as springing from a heart, in the first instance signifying goodness, in the second hope or expectation of reward. As in the oldest temples and catacombs of Egypt, 
so this type likewise abounds in the ruined cities of mexico and central america graven as well upon the most ancient cyclopean and polygonal walls as upon the more modern and perfect examples of masonry and as displayed in an equally conspicuous manner upon the breasts of innumerable bronze statuettes which have been recently disinterred from the cemetery of juigalpa of unknown antiquity in nicaragua when the spanish missionaries first set foot upon the soil of america in the fifteenth century they were amazed to find the cross was as devoutly worshipped by the red indians as by themselves and were in doubt whether to ascribe the fact to the pious labors of st thomas or to the cunning device of the evil one the hallowed symbol challenged their attention on every hand and in almost every variety of form it appeared on the bas-reliefs of ruined and deserted as well as on those of inhabited palaces and was the most conspicuous ornament in the great temple of gozumel off the coast of yucatan according to the particular locality and the purpose which it served it was formed of various materials of marble and gypsum in the open spaces of cities and by the wayside of wood in the teocalis or chapels on pyramidal summits and in subterranean sanctuaries and of emerald or jasper in the palaces of kings and nobles when we ask the question how it comes that the sign of the cross has thus been reverenced from the highest antiquity by the races of the old and new worlds we learn that it is a reminiscence of the garden of eden in other words of atlantis professor hardwick says all these and similar traditions are but mocking satires of the old hebrew story jarred and broken notes of the same string but with all their exaggerations they intimate how in the background of man's vision lay a paradise of holy joy a paradise secured from every kind of profanation and made inaccessible to the guilty a paradise full of objects that were calculated to delight the senses and to elevate the mind a paradise that granted to its tenant rich and rare immunities and that fed with its perennial streams the tree of life and immortality to quote again from the writer in the edinburgh review already cited its undoubted antiquity no less than its extraordinary diffusion evidences that it must have been as it may be said to be still in unchristianized lands emblematical of some fundamental doctrine or mystery the reader will not have failed to observe that it is most usually associated with water it was the key of the nile that mystical instrument by means of which in the popular judgment of his egyptian devotees osiris produced the annual revivifying inundations of the sacred stream it is discernible in that mysterious pitcher or vase portrayed on the brazen table of bembus before mentioned with its four lips discharging as many streams of water in opposite directions it was the emblem of the water deities of the babylonians in the east and of the gothic nations in the west as well as that of the rain deities respectively of the mixed population in america we have seen 
with what peculiar rites the symbol was honored by those widely separated races in the western hemisphere and the monumental slabs of nineveh now in the museums of london and paris show us how it was similarly honored by the successors of the chaldees in the eastern ancient irish cross pre-christian kilnaboy in egypt assyria and britain it was emblematical of creative power and eternity in india china and scandinavia of heaven and immortality in the true americas of rejuvenescence and freedom from physical suffering while in both hemispheres it was the common symbol of the resurrection or the sign of the life to come and finally in all heathen communities without exception he was the emphatic type the sole enduring evidence of the divine unity the circumstance alone determines its extreme antiquity an antiquity in all likelihood long antecedent to the foundation of either of the three great systems of religion in the east and lastly we have seen how as a rule it is found in conjunction with a stream or streams of water with exuberant vegetation and with a bill or a mountainous region in a word with a land of beauty fertility and joy thus it was expressed upon those circular and sacred cakes of the egyptians composed of the richest materials of flour of honey of milk and with which the serpent and bull as well as other reptiles and beasts consecrated to the service of isis and their higher divinities were daily fed and upon certain festivals were eaten with extraordinary ceremony by the people and their priests the cross cake says sir gardner wilkinson was their hieroglyph for civilized land obviously a land superior to their own as it was indeed to all other mundane territories for it was that distant traditional country of sempiternal contentment and repose of exquisite delight and serenity where nature unassisted by man produces all that is necessary for his sustentation and this land was the garden of eden of our race this was the olympus of the greeks where this same mild season gives the blooms to blow the buds to harden and the fruits to grow in the midst of it was a sacred and glorious eminence the umbilicus orbis terrarum toward which the heathen in all parts of the world and in all ages turned a wistful gaze in every act of devotion and to which they hoped to be admitted or rather to be restored at the close of this transitory scene in this glorious eminence do we not see plato's mountain in the middle of atlantis as he describes it near the plain and in the centre of the island there was a mountain not very high on any side and this mountain there dwelt one of the earth-born primeval men of that country whose name was ivanor and he had a wife named Lucipi, and they had an only daughter who was named clato poseidon married her he enclosed the hill in which she dwelt all around making alternate zones of sea and land larger and smaller encircling one another there were two of land and three of water 
so that no man could get to the island. He brought streams of water under the earth to this mountain island, and made all manner of food to grow upon it. This island became the seat of Atlas, the over-king of the whole island. Upon it they built the great temple of their nation. They continued to ornament it in successive generations, every king surpassing the one who came before him to the utmost of his power, until they made the building a marvel to behold for size and beauty. And they had such an amount of wealth as was never before possessed by kings and potentates, as is not likely ever to be again. The gardens of Alcinous and Laertes, of which we read in Homeric song, and those of Babylon, were probably transcripts of Atlantis. The sacred eminence in the midst of a superabundant, happy region figures more or less distinctly in almost every mythology, ancient or modern. It was the Mesomphalus of the earlier Greeks, and the Omphalium of the Cretans, dominating the Elysian fields, upon whose tops, bathed in pure, brilliant, incomparable light, the gods passed their days in ceaseless joys. The Buddhists and Brahmins, who together constitute nearly half the population of the world, tell us that the decussated figure, the cross, whether in a simple or a complex form, symbolizes the traditional happy abode of their primeval ancestors, that paradise of Eden toward the east, as we find expressed in the Hebrew. And, let us ask, what better picture or more significant characters in the complicated alphabet of symbolism could have been selected for the purpose than a circle and a cross, the one to denote a region of absolute purity and perpetual felicity, the other, those four perennial streams that divided and watered the several quarters of it. Edinburgh Review, January 1870. And when we turn to the mythology of the Greeks, we find that the origin of the world was ascribed to Okeanos, the ocean. The world was, at first, an island, surrounded by the ocean, as by a great stream. It was a region of wonders of all kinds. Okeanos lived there with his wife Tethys. These were the islands of the blessed, the gardens of the gods, the sources of nectar and ambrosia, on which the gods lived. Within this circle of water, the earth lay spread out like a disk, with mountains rising from it, and the vault of heaven appearing to rest upon its outer edge all around. Murray's Manual of Mythology, pages 23, 24, and following. On the mountains dwelt the gods. They had palaces on these mountains, with storerooms, stabling, etc., the gardens of the Hesperides, with their golden apples, were believed to exist in some island of the ocean, or, as it was sometimes thought, in the islands off the north or west coast of Africa. They were far famed in antiquity, for it was there that springs of nectar flowed by the couch of Zeus, and there that the earth displayed the rarest blessings of the gods. It was another Eden. Ibidim page 156. Homer described it in these words. Stern winter smiles on that auspicious clime. The fields are florid with unfading prime. 
from the bleak pole no winds inclement blow mold the round hail or flake the fleecy snow but from the breezy deep the blast inhale the fragrant murmurs of the western gale it was the sacred asgard of the scandinavians springing from the centre of a fruitful land which was watered by four primeval rivers of milk severally flowing in the direction of the cardinal points the abode of happiness and the height of bliss it is the tian shan the celestial mountain land the enchanted gardens of the chinese and tartars watered by the four perennial fountains of tichin or immortality it is the hill-encompassed Ilah of the Singhalese and Tibetians, the everlasting dwelling-place of the wise and just. It is the Sinaru of the Buddhist, on the summit of which is Taurutsa, the habitation of Sekra, the supreme god, from which proceed the four sacred streams, running in as many contrary directions. It is the Slavrata, the celestial earth of the Hindu, the summit of his golden mountain Meru, the city of Brahma, in the centre of Jambadwipa, and from the four sides of which gush forth the four primeval rivers, reflecting in their passage the colorific glories of their source, and severally flowing northward, southward, eastward, and westward. It is the garden of Eden of the Hebrews. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted, and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, that is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold and the gold of that land is good. There is Delian and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is it that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hidekel. That is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Genesis 2 eight one five as the four rivers named in genesis are not branches of any one stream and head in very different regions it is evident that there was an attempt on the part of the writer of the book to adapt an ancient tradition concerning another country to the known features of the region in which he dwelt josephus tells us chapter one page forty one now the garden of eden was watered by one river which ran round about the whole earth and was parted into four parts. Here, in the four parts, we see the origin of the cross, while in the river running around the whole earth we have the wonderful canal of Atlantis, described by Plato, which was carried around the whole of the plain, and received the streams which came down from the mountains. The streams named by Josephus would seem to represent the migrations of people from Atlantis to its colonies. Fison, he tells us, denotes a multitude. It ran into India. The Euphrates and Tigris go down into the Red Sea, while the Gian runs through Egypt. 
We are further told, chapter 2, page 42, that when Cain, after the murder of Abel, left the land of Adam, he traveled over many countries before he reached the land of Nod. And the land of Nod was to the eastward of Adam's home. In other words, the original seat of mankind was in the west, that is to say, in the direction of Atlantis. Wilson tells us that the Aryans of India believed that they originally came from the west. Thus the nations on the west of the Atlantic look to the east for their place of origin, while on the east of the Atlantic they look to the west. Thus all the lines of tradition converge upon Atlantis. But here is the same testimony that in the Garden of Eden there were four rivers radiating from one parent stream. And these four rivers, as we have seen, we find in the Scandinavian traditions, and in the legends of the Chinese, the Tartars, the Singhalese, the Tibetans, the Buddhists, the Hebrews, and the Brahmins. And not only do we find this tradition of the Garden of Eden in the Old World, but it meets us also among the civilized races of America. The elder Montezuma said to Cortes, our fathers dwelt in that happy and prosperous place which they called Aztlan, which means whiteness. In this place there is a great mountain in the middle of the water, which is called Culhuacan, because it has the point somewhat turned over toward the bottom. And for this cause it is called Culhuacan, which means crooked mountain. He then proceeds to describe the charms of this favored land, abounding in birds, game, fish, trees, fountains enclosed with elders and junipers, and alder trees both large and beautiful. The people planted maize, red peppers, tomatoes, beans, and all kinds of plants in furrows. Here we have the same mountain in the midst of the water which Plato describes, the same mountain to which all the legends of the most ancient races of Europe refer. The inhabitants of Aztlan were boatmen, Bancroft's Native Races, Volume 5, page 325. E. G. Squire, in his Notes on Central America, page 349, says, It is a significant fact that in the map of their migrations presented by Gemelli, the place of the origin of the Aztecs is designated by the sign of water, Atl, standing for Atlan a pyramidal temple with grades, and near these a palm tree. This circumstance did not escape the attention of Humboldt, who says, I am astonished at finding a palm tree near this Teocali. This tree certainly does not indicate a northern origin. The possibility that an unskillful artist should unintentionally represent a tree of which he had no knowledge is so great that any argument dependent on it hangs upon a slender thread. North Americans of Antiquity, page 266. The Mistecs, a tribe dwelling on the outskirts of Mexico, had a tradition that the gods, in the day of obscurity and darkness, built a sumptuous palace, a masterpiece of skill, in which they made their abode upon a mountain. The rock was called the place of heaven. There the gods first abode on earth, living many years in great rest and content, as in a happy and delicious land, though the world still lay in obscurity and darkness. 
the children of these gods made to themselves a garden, in which they put many trees, and fruit-trees, and flowers, and roses, and odorous herbs. Subsequently, there came a great deluge, in which many of the sons and daughters of the gods perished. Bancroft's Native Races, Volume 3, page 71. Here we have a distinct reference to Olympus, the Garden of Plato, and the destruction of Atlantis. And in Plato's account of Atlantis, we have another description of the Garden of Eden and the Golden Age of the world. Also, whatever fragrant things there are in the earth, whether roots or herbage or woods, or distilling drops of flowers and fruits, grew and thrived in that land. And again the cultivated fruits of the earth, both the edible fruits and other species of food, which we call by the name of legumes, and the fruits having a hard rind, affording drinks and meats and ointments, all these that sacred island, lying beneath the sun, brought forth in abundance. For many generations, as long as the divine nature lasted in them, they were obedient to the laws, and well affectioned toward the gods, who were their kinsmen. For they possessed true and in every way great spirits, practicing gentleness and wisdom in the various chances of life, and in their intercourse with one another. They despised everything but virtue, not caring for their present state of life, and thinking lightly of the possession of gold and other property, which seemed only a burden to them. Neither were they intoxicated by luxury, nor did wealth deprive them of their self-control. But they were sober, and saw clearly that all these goods were increased by virtuous friendship with one another, and that by excessive zeal for them and honor of them, the good of them is lost, and friendship perishes with them. All this cannot be a mere coincidence. It points to a common tradition of a veritable land where four rivers flow down in opposite directions from a central mountain peak, and these four rivers, flowing to the north, south, east, and west, constitute the origin of that sign of the cross which we have seen meeting us at every point among the races who were either descended from the people of Atlantis, or who, by commerce and colonization, received their opinions and civilization from them. End of chapter 5, part 1